All right, everybody, we are here today with a really, really special guest I'm super excited about. He is the Chief Medical Officer and Chief Technology Officer for Cepheid. He is a MD, PhD from my institution, UCSF. Everybody, please welcome Dr. Dave Persing. Thank you, Z. It's a pleasure to be here. Man, thank you for being with us. I have been a fan of yours for a long time. That is very yeah. concerning because you're okay. extremely smart, which makes me think <laughs> there's a component of delusion. <laughs> no, yeah, but I, I have this uh, typical pathologist sense of droll humor, and I, uh, I really appreciate what you've done. So you're, you're trained in pathology, uh, the MD part at UCSF, which is where I went, grim, dark place, lots of fog. <laughs> yes. And you lived in married student housing. I did. That was yeah. up on the hill where it was rainy all the time. Yep, Mount Sutro Tower with the big tower up there and the eucalyptus trees that would catch the fog and drip on my car and dissolve the paint on my car. Uh, but it, you know, it, it, was, it was okay and it was survivable. We enjoyed it, and UCSF was a great place to train. Now you, and the thing is, you were there during the kind of early golden age of genetics, right. and PCR, yeah. and tell us a little about that, because it's fascinating to me how much this has changed, and I think that's really what the show is about, is how we've disrupted this technology of genetics, made it something that you can do very much more uh, quickly, easier, less expensive, and more accurately than ever before, and how that's gonna transform care for our patients. Yeah. So you know, every few decades, there comes along a technology that's transformative. Um, you know, right now all the talk is CRISPR. You know, the gene replacement technology, gene editing technology. Uh, by the way, we've edited Logan's genes in the back, so that he's uh, seventy percent uh, more ripped. Okay. So it's after the fact. It's a yeah. somatic line mutation. It yeah. doesn't work that way, does it? So he's CRISPR. He's he, <laughs> way way CRISPR. Yeah. That's exactly what he is. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry I interrupted you. <laughs> so, but back then, in, uh, in the mid-80s and late-80s, it was PCR. Uh, PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. And it was a way of zeroing in on a, a segment of nucleic acid and amplifying it over a matter of uh, minutes to trillions plus copies. And that made it possible to really go after tiny amounts of genetic material and create a system that would allow you to identify that material very quickly. And you know, it's interesting because in my earliest memories of genetics, I did a, a, a honors thesis in the lab of Jim Fristrom at Berkeley uh, on Drosophila genetics. We were looking for integrant mutations. And so that was my earliest memory of it, apart from learning in college. But I remember in medical school, it started to hit the public I when the OJ trial was happening and they were talking about DNA testing and is it accurate and I mean do you remember that yeah actually uh, let me just step back a little bit okay so I uh, heard about PCR when I was doing tissue culture in the lab of Harold Varmus and Don Gannon wait, 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 wait. Harold Varmus and Harold Don Varmus like, yeah those so, are huge names yeah so I did my, my thesis uh, PhD thesis in genetics with them and uh, I was in the, in, in the lab doing my stuff as a grad student, doing tissue culture, and I hear this report on NPR about this new technology called polymerase chain reaction and how it was going to have this big impact on medicine. And here I am toiling away, trying to get my cells to grow, and, and I hear this and I'm, you know, finishing up my training in grad school, about to finish off medical school after that. 
and, and tried to figure out what I was going to do with, in terms of specialty and what I would uh, pursue career-wise. And I heard that report and I said, I think I want to do that. I, wow. think I, I think I want to focus on that because that's going to have a big impact um, you know, for the next several decades. So um, a lot of my work uh, since then was focused on moving my career toward be, build, being able to build a, um, a, a sort of a, a super specialty, a ultra specialized area of medical practice focusing on using PCR uh, for diagnostics. And, and was pathology the right specialty to choose to do that? It was. Yeah. You know, it, it, when I finished the program in, um, in 88, um, if you knew the difference between CPR and PCR, you were like the Heisman Trophy winner for the year. <laughs> so you're recruited everywhere, right? So um, I was able to uh, strike a special deal with my department chairman at Yale in the laboratory medicine and pathology program there to provide me with a lab and a technician while I was a resident. Wow. So I was able to continue doing stuff and getting publications out while I was, you know, in my residency training. Wow, what a Yale. gunner. So that was, that was really cool. Yeah. And I had planned on staying there at Yale, but then, you know, publications came out, got a science paper out of it, and uh, that hit the news, and then Mayo Clinic calls and mm. says, we want one of those CPR guys and, you know, PCR guys. <laughs> and we want, we want a CPR laboratory, a PCR laboratory, um, and we want to put a lot of resources into building one of the first uh, most advanced PCR laboratories in the, in the world. So uh, it became an offer I couldn't refuse. Wow. And so we thought about moving west, back to the west coast. We didn't quite make it there because Rochester, Minnesota is not all the way out to the west coast. But we ended up spending the next um, decade uh, at the Rochester campus uh, for the Mayo Clinic. Um, and back then, the technology was very crude by today's standards. It was very much manual. Uh, you had to carry out the amplification and detection and separate steps. And the biggest problem with PCR was contamination uh, because you're, you're taking a few copies, creating trillions of copies, and then you're taking that tube with trillions of copies and transferring it to another chamber. In the process, Amplicons fly, all these PCR fragments fly, and they can contaminate the environment. They call them Amplicons? They're called Amplicons. It sounds like yeah. some sort of transformer or Decepticon. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. Amplicons, transform Amplicons, yes. and rule. Bumblebee Amplicon. Oh, well yeah. played. Yeah. Yes, yes. But um, actually, it, it was a huge problem technically. So I spent the first three years at Mayo figuring out ways to avoid uh, contamination problems and published a lot about how to do that mm. and um, taught you know a lot of people who do PCR now how to avoid contamination in their laboratories um, but along the way because of that publication record um, I kind of became known as the the king of contamination the guy who knew most about contamination and as a result of that, uh, I get a call in 1994 uh, by Barry Sheck, who is the, what, the criminal defense 
attorney, the forensic specialist uh, for O.J. Simpson. Wait, wait, okay, hold on, hold on. I just want to make sure I confirm something here. Barry Shack, you who work with Kardashian. Right. So yeah. by being here with you, we shook hands earlier. Yeah. I am one degree of separation from the Kardashians. <laughs> okay. I just want to confirm that. So Barry okay. Sheck calls you. Yeah. And it's like, the, what, 95? Out of the blue. I get a page and I get a oh call transfer. I'm walking down the hall, get a, you know, pick up the, the phone off the hook in the hallway, and it's Barry Sheck. Um, so that led to a series of communications about what contamination is, how it could affect uh, forensic evaluation using PCR technologies. And, um, you know, whatever you think of the case, uh, the bottom line was there, was there were problems with the forensic evidence in that trial that were associated with contamination. And the good news is that the whole field of forensics has changed to allow for better control of contamination problems and really move toward a much more rigorous, stringent process that allows um, reliability uh, of results using PCR and forensic analysis. So those problems have, have largely been overcome or ameliorated, and Johnny Cochran should have said, if the Amplicon fits, <laughs> you must acquit. That's right. That's all I'm saying. Uh, that, that yeah. is, that's amazing. So you've seen and you've participated in the growth and, and, and miniaturization and improvement in PCR over the years, yep. and it's been your passion and your calling. Yep, exactly. So, you know, over the years, the technology's evolved to where, to where it's a lot less um, hands-on. It's now self-contained, so uh, contamination is not nearly the problem it used to be. It's still a problem in some settings, but uh, not nearly the, the problem that, um, that we uh, dealt with early on. And it's made it possible to develop and to democratize that technology across a lot more places. But it's, when I uh, uh, finished my tenure at Mayo, it, it was still something that was the domain of reference laboratories. Mm. Uh, and even now, a lot of molecular testing occurs only in reference laboratories uh, because of the special procedures and skill sets that are required. So um, toward the end of my time at Mayo, I was really feeling the, the, um, the need to scale you know, the need to go beyond, as much as I loved patient problem solving at Mayo, and I had a lot of the most interesting patients at Mayo that I was consulted on uh, to provide molecular testing, um, uh, I, felt like, I felt the need to scale, you know, scale or bail. You know, it was like, uh, make this technology more accessible, more available. And um, so there was, uh, and we were just on the edge of being able to um, automate a lot of the procedures uh, that went into the PCR process. Um, so I, when I joined Cepheid in 2005, I, um, I saw this, this cartridge that looked like it would be able to automate a lot of the steps in PCR. And actually, here's the cartridge here uh, that um, we worked on. And essentially, this was taking my four-room PCR facility at the Mayo Clinic with a small army of technicians and oh, yeah hold it up high so we can see it yeah, there we go yeah there it is yeah, yeah. and and using the 11 chamber 
capability of this technology to be able to automate all the steps of sample extraction, purification, uh, amplification, and detection uh, in, in an automated process. Mm. And so that made it possible to think about actually moving this technology out of the reference lab setting and making it much more widely available. So honestly, this is why I wanted you on the show because all the other stuff is very interesting, but it's, uh, it's an archival sort of path to where we are now. Yeah. And with your work, uh, working with Cepheid, you've miniaturized, can you throw that cartridge my way? You've sure. miniaturized what used to take a massive set of rooms and staff at Mayo mm -hmm. into, into this and a machine. Yep. And where this interested me is in the disruption of diagnostics and therapeutics across disease pathways. So right. we're talking about infectious diseases that take currently take too long to diagnose, too long to test for, need right. to go to specialized facilities. We can now do this quickly, cheaply, and accurately in a way that was unimaginable before. And that's when I got more interested in this intersection of, of deep science and management of flu. Yeah. Well, it turns out it's something you're really crazy about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, flu testing has been a big challenge over the years because of um, the, the fact that um, a lot of the technologies in use a decade ago uh, just weren't um, as reliable as it needed to be. Uh, you could generally trust a positive result, but you really couldn't trust a negative result. So it was very uh, specific, but not sensitive. That's right. Did I do that right? You did that absolutely <laughs> right. So the positive predictive value was better than the negative predictive value of the right. test. So, um, we endeavored to, to change that with a, a flu cartridge that we um, developed a few years ago. And um, we were very successful with that. And, but during the course of a few seasons, we were seeing where some of the molecular tests that were developed were losing their ability to detect the strains that were occurring during the course of the season because of a mutation that happened in the target gene that was being amplified. So in other words, the, as, flu, as we all know, many people know, the flu is constantly modulating, mutating, yep. changing, and that was befuddling the test, the yep. molecular level yeah, test. Yeah, even the molecular tests were getting befuddled. So looking at DNA or so RNA in this case. we didn't want to go back to you know, the way things were with the antigen test, so uh, we ended up completely redesigning uh, our flu cartridge to include not one genetic target, but three independent genetic targets that were highly complementary that compensated if one of them lost, it, one of them developed a mutation. So uh, the other two would still function. And we also said, we really need to prepare for the worst with this technology. We need to build in the ability to detect avian flu strains. Mm -hmm. If we do, if the worst happens, the so-called bird flu, a yeah. bird flu. If the if the bird flu, uh, which is uh, what happened in 1918, was a highly reassembled, reassorted virus that included included bird flu segments. How many people died? Something uh, like 20 million. Uh, estimated uh, up to 100 million wow. people died yeah. as a function of that, um, and probably a bigger impact than World War One in terms of overall world war worldwide mortality. But it. Um, it was a, a big, it, it would have been a huge problem for uh, any flu test to be able to pick that infection up. Mm. 
And so uh, we built in an avian target, an avian preferential target uh, in, that, in the assay as well. And the idea was to make it bulletproof that it wouldn't be subject to seasonal drift and antigenic variation, mutational variation. So you could rely on it year over year. And, and that drift and that antigenic variation is what makes flu so difficult to sort of uh, become immune to or generate vaccinations for because it's always changing and the target, exactly. the antigenic targets are changing. Yeah, exactly. Right. So testing is still a problem. So it's also a problem for testing. It's also a problem for testing. Why, why is flu so evil? What is it doing it's to just, us? It's just the nature of an RNA virus. It mutates quickly. It's very adaptable. It has a very plastic uh, genome that accommodates a lot of changes over time and it's just part of its adaptability across species and within uh, a species. Is it because error correction within RNA is less robust? It's likely that there's immune selective pressure happening in the immune in, in the population that's infected so that you get these immune escape variants that are mutational variants that are uh, difficult to detect. Mm. Um, the, uh, the vaccines uh, have been, um, are, are typically um, assembled based on what's expected to happen in the upcoming uh, 18 months. Mm. Uh, and uh, usually they're right. Sometimes they're not right in terms of the mix of strains in the vaccine. Um, overall, uh, the vaccines have been highly effective. Uh, recent paper in the New England Journal saying that actually Influenza has a huge impact on cardiac morbidity and mortality because of the fact that it produces this highly inflammatory state and may actually infect the myocardium. And, you know, this is really important stuff. Yeah, let me put an emphasis on that. So th this data showing that, you know, people with, infected with flu are more likely to have heart attacks, yeah. more or less, to simplify it, because of the reasons that you said, it, this is yet another reason that flu can be very dangerous and yeah. why vaccination, getting vaccination right is important. So sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, vaccination is still our best, uh, best strategy for preventing flu. Even if the vaccine's not fully protective in blocking the infection completely, it still has an effect on reducing the severity of symptoms. And that's gonna have an effect on uh, morbidity and mortality. So, but even if um, uh, a case does come into the hospital that's uh, infected, it's important, you know, to be able to identify the case quickly, uh, to institute antiviral therapy if they're going to be admitted to the ICU to prevent complications downstream and try to block uh, transmission within the hospital setting by getting them on antivirals quickly. Um, and this is. Um, a very important strategy that fast testing enables uh, to happen. Can I ask a question? So in terms of predicting the composition of next year's vaccine, would extensive molecular testing like what you guys do and offer on a mass level with data that fed back into CDC, would that yeah. help us design better vaccines? It could. I think the um, uh, one of the hard things to do is predict when the flu season actually starts. Right. Um, right now, samples get sent to um, state and uh, state public health labs, local and state public health labs, and then uh, CDC. And there's about a two-week delay in assembling all that data. Um, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be able to uh, pull data directly off the instruments as they're testing patients in real time in emergency departments and hospitals, 
and feed that into a cloud-based system to actually look at the breakdown of results. Is it flu A? Is it flu B? Is it respiratory syncytial virus in real time? And maybe even be able to look at the amount of virus present season over season on average in the population, would that be a predictor of the effectiveness of the vaccine uh, for that given season? Would we be able to look at season over season variation in average viral load values uh, to be able to predict severity of the flu season? See, th this is fascinating because it's a it's a big data play at the at the small level, taking that data and feeding in it. You know, Google's try to yep. use symptom yep. stuff to, to yeah. predict, but yeah. we could do it very accurately and precisely. Yeah, yeah. What what Google flu really needed was was the goo. They needed someone to put the goo into Google flu, which was the snot. The, yeah. The, the the stuff that you the test, sample. the actual result for influenza. That would be a lot better at predicting uh, the, um, uh, the accuracy of, of uh, predicting the severity of the flu season. So I think um, that's where the technology needs to go. It'd be nice to know that, hey, listen, we've got flu cases coming up. I need to stock up on Tamiflu uh, and uh, I need to order more flu tests and to know in advance before it actually hits the fan. Now you, before your work, uh with Cepheid, you actually worked a little bit on vaccines and adjuvants and yep. things like that. Yeah. Uh, do you yourself get the flu shot? Are you a believer? I absolutely am. I get it every year. Um, and uh, we depend as a population on something called herd immunity to be able to get enough people vaccinated. Not everybody's going to get the vaccine, but if you get enough people vaccinated, you can actually block the effectiveness of transmission of an epidemic because the infection will run into somebody who's been, been vaccinated will be a dead end there. Uh, and uh, it, the, the kinetics of spread of the infection are, um, are, are affected by how many people are already immune. So it's important to develop that herd immunity. That can happen through natural infection, right? but it can also happen uh, through vaccination. And the combination of natural infection and vaccination to provide a boost to your already existing natural immunity is very important. Seems to me that your technology, this technology of rapid flu testing, molecular testing, could actually start to analyze vaccine patterns of eff efficacy and lack of e efficacy. So you've got a vaccinated population, some of them are infected, they end up getting actual flu. Yeah. You do the actual flu and you figure out exactly what it is. Yeah. And what maybe even, can you do <clears throat> flu viral load? Yes, that's yeah. the idea. I don't think a viral load value in an individual patient is that useful. Right. But I think if you take tens of thousands of patients and you look at average values and you categorize them by age and vaccine status, gee, wouldn't that be nice? If you saw that vaccinated people had lower viral loads on average, even if they got infected despite the vaccine, uh, had lower viral loads than non-vaccinated, you might be able to say, hey, that's a good match you know, for this year. Got it. If you see zero delta, that's a, maybe a bad sign, maybe something new, maybe, some, maybe an avian flu strain is now um, appearing. Ah. So if there's no protective effect of the vaccine, uh, would that be a, a way of monitoring the effectiveness of the vaccine, also predicting severity of the flu season? 
You know, and last thought relating to that, <laughs> there are a group of uh, vaccine folks and even people who believe in vaccines in general who don't like the flu shot because they swear they get the flu shot and they get the flu a day after <laughs> or a week after. Right. I imagine you could actually do the molecular test on them very yeah. quickly and yeah. say, well, yeah, actually you did get the flu because it was a day after and it <laughs> yeah, takes right. two weeks for the antibodies from right. the flu shot. Exactly. Or no, what you have is not flu. Yeah. What you have is some, something else, yeah. adenovirus, what exactly. rhinovirus. Yep. And exactly. so we could actually put some of this nonsense to rest but with actual science. That's right. Um, so th this to me is very exciting. I'm also excited that you're a fan of flu shot. Having worked on vaccines, having worked on science, mm -hmm. you actually understand how this stuff works Mm -hmm. And also have the human element of like, we're trying to save lives here. We're trying, this is exactly. a deadly disease in cases. Yeah. And you mentioned natural immunity as potentially being a block uh, in a kind of a herd immunity in itself. So in other mm -hmm. words, naturally getting the disease. But in the case of say varicella, chickenpox, yeah. people want to throw chickenpox parties. Guys, they don't remember. Yeah. There was something like, I forget what it was, 10,000 admissions a year yeah. for chickenpox related complications, skin infections, yeah. sepsis, pneumonia. We don't remember polio as a population, as a, as a generation. We don't remember the impact of polio. We don't remember the impact of measles. We're now starting to see some of that in Europe where they're seeing outbreaks of measles um, because of uh, loss of vaccine um, uptake. Um, in places, in, ironically, in the Congo right now, in an Ebola endemic area, in the context of dealing with Ebola, they're also dealing with um, polio-like viral infections, measles, monkeypox, mm. and other infections for which there are no vaccines available in that population. And um, those are confounders. Somebody gets a fever, is it Ebola? Maybe it's measles. Mm. Uh, so this needs to be sorted out. But the bottom line is that that if, if you actually see the impact of these infections and the, the significant uh, morbidity and mortality they can produce, if we can go back and revisit history on polio uh, and how many young people were, uh, whose lives were destroyed as a function of polio uh, in, the, um, in the 1920s, 30s, and even 40s, uh, look at the FDR story, mm -hmm. right? I mean, this was, this was a, a big deal, and we've lost that generational memory yeah. of the impact of these huge problems. And I, I think we need to, uh, you know, understand that better and realize that, in fact, there are uh, a lot of benefits to doing what we're doing uh, with the current vaccine approaches. And um, my former thesis advisor, Don Ganim, said, you always have to ask yourself, is the juice worth the squeeze? Mm. Um, is the juice worth the squeeze? And um, I think in the case of many of the vaccines that are available now, the juice is definitely worth the squeeze. So, so t tell me what, you know, what, what is this technology being used for now through your company that is going to transform how we care for patients? Sure. I think uh, I, I, you know, I've said uh, we've gone from trick-or-treat to test-and-treat. Uh, and, um, you know, previously you had tests that, that would kind of trick people into thinking they were, they were reliable, but usually they were more reliable for positive results than they were for negative results yeah. uh, because they weren't that sensitive. So they would 
if they were positive, yes, they were probably flu or group A strep or TB. Uh, but they, if they were negative, uh, you really couldn't trust that result. Right. Now the results are much more reliable. Mm. Uh, and the negative result, you actually can, you actually can trust in, uh, in, in, these, um, in these technologies. And so what that has allowed for is a lot greater confidence and the speed to the diagnosis that allows you to make a real-time decision about what to treat with, what to, how to manage a patient. And that's played out on a number of fronts uh, worldwide uh, with our technology. Because I can imagine even just on the flu front, if you're working in the emergency department, a negative test is incredibly important to be able to trust that result. Mm -hmm. If you don't yep. trust it, you start to hedge. Do I admit the patient? Do we ob observe? Yep. Do we bring them back first thing in the morning? And it becomes expensive, inconvenient for the patient, and potentially dangerous. So I can think about things that uh, you and I have talked about. For example, tuberculosis testing. Right. How might, because right now it is an ordeal to test for TB. Right. How has this transformed that process, and not just here, but worldwide? It's actually a great story. We um, actually goes back to the Mayo Clinic. So in 1994, I had a, a postdoc working on a test uh, for tuberculosis that would uh, go straight to sputum and amplify the drug resistance genes out of the sputum and say that it was TB and also that it was drug resistant. Mm. Uh, and when he wrote that paper up, he, um, in the discussion section, he said, you know, someday this te technology may actually make it out to where it really counts, which is in places where drug-resistant TB is more common in Africa and other places. Um, and my comment back to him was, that's never going to happen. Wow. Uh, this, this, this technology is way too complicated, requires a four-room PCR facility and DNA sequencing. But I let him keep it in there, okay? And I'm so glad I did because I was wrong. Wow. Uh, I, I'm happy to be proven wrong that, in fact, that approach finally did make it in to this format that allows us to directly detect TB and drug resistance directly from sputum in about uh, an hour to an hour and a half. That's ridiculous. So not only, okay, let me just understand this in my very, very, very sad hospitalist brain. In an hour, based on a sputum sample, you can first of all diagnose TB is present. Second mm -hmm. of all, whether it is drug-resistant TB. Yep. Using this process. Yep. I think you said it when you said in the U.S. That's fantastic. Around the world, it's life-saving, crucial, yep. transformative. Yep. And so, are you deploying this, or are you just squirreling it all no, behind actually, the door somewhere? No, it's, um, it's received endorsement by the um, WHO. Uh, for implementation worldwide, recommended to be used in a variety of settings. It's led to the installation of over 18,000 systems, um, about half of which are used for TB testing. It led to a, um, a special pricing agreement that allowed us to sell that cartridge at a low cost uh, that was subsidized for a while until we had volume sufficient to keep it at that low price on its own. And that has led to worldwide uptake of that one test. So that one test has really allowed Cepheid to become a global company more than any other uh, technology. So 
let me focus on that statement for a second because this is what I've been talking about with our ZPAC for a long time, which is you can do well financially, you've become a global company, you've grown mm -hmm. based on the science that you guys have developed. You can do well financially by doing good for human beings in the world, yep. which you have done. And it's that, that intersection that is what we call Health 3.0. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're really excited about this because tuberculosis, I mean, what, what part of the, this is just a nerdy question, what part of the resistance element of TB are you amplifying to test? Is it a plasmid? What's carrying the resistance element in the DNA? Right, so it's actually a, a part of the genome that um, it, it encodes a polymerase, an RNA polymerase, that is the target of rifampicin. Mm. So rifampicin is a surrogate marker for multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. Um, if it's rifampicin resistant, as a TB strain, it's more, much more likely to be resistant to other things as well. They kind of go hand in hand. Exactly. So right. um, it's a surrogate system for going down the pathway of using a very different treatment regimen for tuberculosis. Do you need a follow-up test if your test is positive? Do you need to confirm with anything? Do you need further testing for drug sensitivities, et cetera? That's uh, being uh, um, looked at right now, and Cephi is actually developing a cartridge for TB that looks for other drug resistance markers that'll be available in 2020 as a follow-on to that test to see which uh, alternative treatment regimen is going to be most effective. Um, so, but that's the entry point right now. That's the one that says it's sensitive TB. You could use the usual regimen versus uh, you need uh, a second line regimen that involves a lot more um, drugs and um, greater toxicities. Um, we're trying to get away from injectable regimens right now mm. for drug-resistant TB. Uh, that's in the works. Mm. But ha knowing more about the drug resistance that you're dealing with is gonna be part of our future as well. So it seems to me that that would open the door for things like Ebola, HIV, HCV, other infectious agent testing. Yeah, absolutely. So, once you have the systems out there, and those systems can be used to run a variety of tests, not just TB. Mm. Um, it took a long time for us to convince the world that actually that box that you, that you installed for TB testing can be used for HIV, chlamydia gonorrhea, Ebola, other applications, and they can be run um, all at the same time if you need to. You can run them in a, in a random access mode. And so what has essentially happened is we've now created laboratory capacity to run a whole uh, menu of tests. And in much of the TB infected or endemic world, um, HIV is also very common. So treating patients and diagnosing patients who have uh, HIV uh, for the presence of tuberculosis is very challenging. Mm. Um, so it's, it's almost a panel now. You can say, yeah. okay, these things co-ride with each other often. Uh, that, well, that makes me think, why are we, this, this can't be limited obviously to the developing world, a panel of uh, sexually transmitted infection testing. Yeah. Uh, you know, we just did a show on um, expedited partner therapy and how yeah. we, you know, we just assume they're infected if uh, the right. target case has chlamydia or gonorrhea. 
and treat them prophylactically. But if there's a panel that you can just run, especially yeah. since the stigma is so high for testing and that, and make it yeah. as easy as possible, do you have such a thing? We do. Actually, mm. the, uh, we have a, a chlamydia gonorrhea test, which is, uh, is being widely adopted. Uh, one of the most impressive demonstrations of the power of a test and treat protocol is at a clinic in London um, called the Dean Street Clinic. I've heard of this, uh, yeah. Yeah, and they, they're in the theater district in, uh, in, in Soho, uh, not far from the Broad Street Pump. I don't know if you learned about the Broad Street yeah, Pump. Yeah, that was the cholera uh, yeah. uh, epidemiology. Just yeah. walking distance to the Broad Street Pump. Um, and it's, uh, but this clinic is very active. They, they uh, deal mostly with gay men. Uh, and they, um, uh, they, do, uh, they have a walk-in clinic where pa it's a very comfortable setting where patients fill out a history, uh, self-collect uh, specimens, and then they get uh, the assay started on a big infinity system sitting there in the clinic, which they're watching run while, they, uh, while they're there. And uh, they can either wait for the result or they can go back out in the street, have coffee, and they get a text saying, hey, you need to come back huh. or you're good to go. And this means a lot to them. Wow. It also is very important for interrupting the chain of transmission to get those results quickly and the patients treated quickly. So, so, so let me put up emphasis on that. You can quickly, in this very convenient way, that I imagine is actually has a high value, so yeah. the cost, convenience, quality, accuracy are all there. They get their results, so instead of waiting, and stressing yeah. out and yeah. in inducing anxiety and continuing potentially to transmit if they're infected. You block the train of chain of transmission yeah. early with quick, accurate diagnostics that are easy. See, this is how we ought to be yeah. doing things. No, I actually, I actually went in there as a, as a patient. Oh, yeah. And registered. It's a free service. And you were pan positive uh, across the board, and, right? Yeah. Well, I, so I went through the process, filled out the survey, got my Dune Street card for future entry so they have my information. Just plug it in and get tested immediately. Uh, but I got tested, and um, I, I, uh, about two hours later, I'm sitting in a meeting with a bunch of my colleagues who did the same thing, and I got the result back that I was negative. Awesome. Which uh, was not too surprising to my wife, <laughs> uh, but she was happy to see that. Could you imagine the yeah. other text, though? <laughs> uh, yeah. Please come back. Yeah. But I, it's funny because we're sitting out of the room with our colleagues, and I'm, they're, they're getting texts around the same time, and I'm looking at the facial expressions around the room as they're getting these texts. And, and I, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I can imagine if it's just. <gasps> <laughs> Uh, that's that's yeah. that is yeah. transformative. Yeah, that's transformative. It is, and that's that's uh, that that model has gone viral or chlamydial, um, you know, really to extend to other clinics uh, in the UK, where there's now some clinics in the US that are following that model, and uh, we think it's a critical need to be able to identify um, these infections quickly, especially now in the age of PrEP. Uh, the the pre-exposure prophylaxis pre for HIV, yes. Yeah, where, they, where they need to be tested frequently for both um, HIV and, uh, and CTNG. Um, and, chlamydia uh, gonorrhea, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. chlamydia gonorrhea. So uh, this is really important stuff because it's, it's, it's critical in, in reducing um, transmission pressure uh, within the population to avoid 
that window of uncertainty about not having a result uh, where there could be transmission opportunities, closing the gap between getting the result and getting treated. And even, even in partner uh, notifications, uh, it makes sense to have, uh, to put testing in place there because not all the partners are going to be positive. Right, uh, and right. it would be nice to know Before you treat. on the basis of a definitive result whether you need to treat or not. So it's just much faster, it's easier, there's less stigma, there's not, you know, it's, it's, it's automated in a way that young people are actually used to getting a text yeah. instead of having to talk to somebody and exactly. be a little uncomfortable and that kind of thing that, yeah. that uh, the kids these days yeah. are just. So, so to me, well, okay, here's a crazy question. Uh, I see the need for this in another community that could desperately use it for quick, accurate STI uh, testing, and that is the adult uh, film community. Uh, it, have, have you guys explored that as a potential? We have not, but we've <laughs> heard the same, the same concern, that actually there would be value, I would think, in testing and treating quickly, given the frequency of exposure of this crowd that would make sense to be able to try to block transmission uh, in that setting as well. And, and all joking aside, this is a crowd that is not using you know, condoms and, and right. safe sex. Yeah. And so as a result, they are actually at high risk. And there's been some events yeah. where people have been infected. So yeah. th this, this, again, I, I think this, to see this, did you ever think it would get to this stage? Um, you know, we, we only hoped a few years mm -hmm. ago that it would get to this point and be able to really drive actionable results uh, that could lead to, to, uh, to decisions that are, that are, that are um, specific for the condition uh, that is found uh, at the point of care. And this uh, is, you know, it's becoming reality, so. You know, what, what you guys have done with flu uh, is really interesting. You know, we did that video about it, and I learned a lot from that because I used to rely on those swab antigen tests and mm -hmm. to see that there's a, a better test that's more accurate that'll help me make clinical decisions. So a lot yeah. of times I do it clinically. This person definitely pro has right. flu, and, yeah. and we're not giving everybody Tamiflu anyways, but for those that are at risk w that we do, it's, it's a really transformative technology. Do you see it continuing to uh, improve to the extent that it gets faster, cheaper, more, it's already highly accurate, um, mm -hmm. but more available, because I think one of the big uh, concerns a lot of people have if you're working in a federally qualified healthcare facility or with yeah. um, uh, lower income people is, can we afford this? Uh, yeah. And is it, is it the cost benefit worth it? Yeah. I think there's, uh, it, it's always getting uh, faster and less expensive. That's the trajectory of technology in general. Um, and Cephi is no exception. Um, the, um, there's also recognition that in many parts of the world that central lab testing is actually more expensive than doing it on a decentralized basis. So, for instance, in Africa, if you're trying to diagnose um, uh, HIV, get an HIV viral load in a, in a setting that's not in a, near a central lab, um, Often the, um, the, the, the venipuncture sample gets drawn, it gets sent to the central lab, and then the results come back uh, weeks later and the patient's nowhere to be found. Mm. Um, and then they have to redraw and retest because there's a gap, time gap between the first and second samples, so you don't know what the real viral load is at mm. the time of, of, uh, of testing. And so you're looking at doing multiple tests to get one that actually can be actionable. Mm. 
And so having this technology, which is more expensive than a, than a single central lab test, but less expensive than multiple central lab tests, and actionable the vast majority of the time because the patient is still there right. when the result is delivered, that is a huge cost savings. So get it right the first time, right there at the point of care where you can actually make the decision the patient's still there. Yep. Yeah, see that, 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 that to me is the compelling, most compelling case for that. Yeah. One thing, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prep. Now, my, I had my brother-in-law on the show. He's an ID doc in Michigan. Yep. This is one of his passions. Uh, you know, what's your thinking on this, the new drugs coming out, and how does it relate to uh, the testing that you're doing? Right, so um, clearly there's a need for frequent um, uh, testing for chlamydia and gonorrhea uh, because of exposure that happens in, uh, in patients who are on pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, there's also a need for um, hepatitis C testing because that's one of the infections that's on the rise. So in other words, in, people, pe people who are on the PrEP regimen thinking, that, okay, maybe I'm okay about HIV, a little more protected, yeah. they can still get gonorrhea, chlamydia, HCV. Yep, And exactly. we need to test, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, monitoring for increased uh, risk for those infections needs to happen. In addition, there's a compelling need for better, faster uh, HIV diagnostics. Number one, to qualify a patient for PrEP. They can't be infected when they start PrEP. Mm. So you have to declare them negative, clearly negative, with a sensitive test uh, before they start PrEP. And you don't want to wait for that result because when you decide to put them on PrEP based on the negative result, it may be 10 days out. They could have gotten yeah, HIV exposed. in the meantime. And I've heard, I've heard actual stories about patients who become positive in between the first blood draw for HIV diagnosis yeah. and then getting the first um, administration of PrEP. And that's not a good thing because the virus becomes resistant in that context. Time is virus yeah. in this case. So having, yeah. uh, having the capability of doing a same day test and treat protocol for HIV for, for PrEP qualification would be a game changer. And uh, likewise, monitoring them frequently for infection once PrEP is initiated, because you can still get breakthrough events that happen because of noncompliance or other reasons. And they need to be monitored for HIV infection alongside uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and other things. And that's um, get, getting those results back quickly, even before there's evidence of antibody or antigen, you know, proteins for HIV expressed, uh, we give an early opportunity to detect infections uh, before um, uh, they become, um, you know, fully transmissible. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, and, and here's a question that my audience is going to wonder, how do we start to access some of this testing? Because maybe they're working in a small clinic, maybe they're working in a hospital, maybe they're lab, there are a lot of lab people that follow the show. Right. Because we did this one rap called In the Lab, mm -hmm. and uh, they yeah. were like, someone made us a rap. That's a strange thing and wonderful, uh, because we deeply appreciate our, our lab. Um, how can they start to learn more and, and, and get more uh, uh, advocacy going for this sort of testing? I think it, it is really, uh, it, it's already a, uh, a movement that's underway to provide rapid, actionable results on systems like ours, not just Cepheid, but other systems, uh, that can um, uh, provide information that 
uh, leads to treatment decisions in real time. Um, you know, flu RSV testing was never something that was very popular in the reference lab because it just took too long. Even if it takes a day or two uh, to get results back, that's too late. So labs realize that to be able to provide the best information for their clinicians, they need to provide rapid turnaround testing for, uh, for that uh, application. Uh, but I think increasingly they're getting aware of the fact that there's, this applies to many things across the board just out, outside of flu. Um, for STI testing, chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, um, as well as other viral infections that need to be detected more early. Mm. You know, one thought, uh, I don't know if you guys are doing this, but thinking about Ebola, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the time you were quarantining people who have fever and signs of it with other Ebola patients. So if they yeah. went into quarantine without Ebola, now they have Ebola. Do you guys have a technique to maybe test Ebola in advance? Yeah, we do. And in fact, yeah. that, that cartridge that was designed for Ebola detection is now being used on a widespread basis in the recent outbreak in the Congo. Really? So you guys are yes. using this there? Yes, it is. It's being widely used. Um, and it's considered to be one of the major tools for identifying patients quickly. Uh, in the last outbreak that started in 2014, one of the biggest challenges with Ebola was that if you had a fever and you're in an Ebola endemic area, uh, and you looked like you might be an Ebola patient, you were quarantined with patients who did have Ebola, mm. and there was transmission mm. uh, in the quarantine setting. So really not knowing for sure whether a patient was Ebola positive led to a lot of uncertainty, led to delays uh, in, uh, in case management and care, and also led to more transmission. Yeah. And, um, so this technology is now being used on the spot uh, in a lot of places where the outbreak is, uh, is happening right now, and it's having a big impact on how they manage uh, the, uh, the emerging um, uh, epidemic of Ebola. Mm. And that is um, a very important piece of information for them that's actionable. Uh, there are new treatments that are in clinical trials there are therapeutic antibodies that have been developed. There's uh, an Ebola vaccine. Uh, if they find an Ebola case quickly, they can begin ring vaccination efforts to try to prevent more cases from happening around that case. Uh, they can trace um, exposures uh, for family members that may have had contact with an Ebola patient to know who's gonna be their next case of Ebola because of that exposure. And all this can happen within uh, a few hours versus days or weeks uh, in the previous uh, the, outbreak. So this is science in action, helping humans in need. That's what we want to see in this world. That's why we're so tireless in advocating for scientists like yourself and organizations mm -hmm. that are working on this. And why we will never stop fighting people who deny the science. <laughs> We will be mean to them because we like to, and also we will listen and we will educate and we will move hearts and minds. Dr. Dave Persing, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. It's an honor to be with someone who took medicine, science, and passion for humans and combined it and actually made a difference in the world. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, it's my pleasure.